apocalypse, which meant the uncovered. It means to be uncovered. So we're getting a glimpse into the future here. And uh, we're going to look a little bit at the authorship. Now, surprisingly enough, a lot of people don't realize this, but there's a lot of questions about authorship in regards to who wrote the book of John. So one of the first places we could look to is the book itself. So in Revelation chapter 1, uh, or chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Okay, so John's involved, who bore witness of, to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So it opens up telling us John. And then we're going a little further, a couple more verses. John, the author identifies himself, John to the seven churches who are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And then again, same chapter, goes back. I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation and in the kingdom and in the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And again, at the end of the book, I, John, am the one am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. So I'm pretty sure it's safe to say John wrote the book. But now we have another question. John who? Right? Because there's several, new, there's all kinds of Johns in the new, even in the New Testament. So we have John the Baptist. We have John the son of Zebedee. We have Simon Peter's father, John, which we find in John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. Then we have John Mark, who we're familiar with. John, who belonged to the high priest family in Acts. So which John was it? Well, and here's where we get into some weeds. In the early church fathers, I'm going to tell you a little bit about each one of these because they play significant roles when we begin to understand textual criticism. We talked about textual criticism before. The concept of, what we have, we can believe. And some of it goes back to these early people who testify to the fact of what we're looking at is actually the Word of God. So in each of these incidents, each of these early church fathers assume it was John the Apostle or John the Disciple. There isn't discussion about it. It's just presented in all their writings as a matter of fact. Right? It's just fact. Something like saying the CN Tower is in Toronto. I'm not going to cite you on that. That's just a fact. It's there. If you still want to go look yourself, you can go. Um, so they, they just took that. So who are these men? Because if you do a lot of reading, especially Old Testament or New Testament theology, uh, you will find in a lot of the introductions of the commentaries, you'll find in a lot of the readings and discussions, these men will be cited again and again. So Justin, he lived, or Justin the martyr, he lived approximately 100 to 165 AD. He was a Christian writer. Uh, he was a teacher. He was, as you can see there, he's a native of Samaria, but he moved to Ephesus to study philosophy, uh, likely under those who would have sat with Paul. He was impressed by the Christian martyrs that he saw and how they stood in the face of death. 
And while in Ephesus, is my understanding, he meant an old man. Somebody Phil Campbell's age. He meant an old man. Phil's not here to defend himself tonight. <laughs> we have this ongoing feud. Um, he met an older gentleman who challenged him in his thinking, and he began to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. And it was through this old gen- older gentleman that he believed in Jesus Christ and then began his writings and all the rest of that we have left to us, and he died a martyr. Then we have Irenaeus. A little bit later, 130 to 202 was his lifespan. He was a bishop in modern-day Lyons, France, is where he was from, and he was really a stalwart. He was an opponent against any heresy. He would root it out, and, and that was his specialty. He also had a lot of influence on the canon. So the Bible that you, mine's over there, but the Bible that you hold in your hands and the put, beginnings of putting it together and recognizing what was Scripture and what was not Scripture and, and, and that's fun. If you've never read anything on the canon and how the whole thing was put together, it's a fascinating study on how they, they learn to recognize things, even in the Old Testament, and, and how they begin to reference each other's writings as Scripture. So he was heavily involved in that. Now, he was also a student of Polycarp. Polycarp is key to a lot of these guys because Polycarp, was a disciple of the Apostle John. The same John that walked with Christ, the same John that was on um, the island of Patmos, the same John that we say wrote Revelation, and the same John that wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So, in Irenaeus studied under Justin Martyr. So, he had two people that he was discipled by. Then we run into Clement of Rome, another interesting character in the sense of his connections back to the time of the disciples and the apostles. So he was a bishop in the Church of Rome, and he wrote from the Roman church from Rome to Corinth. And you can look that up. There's a book called First Clement, and it was written in A.D. 96. And it was probably written before John had passed away. Now... It's the only authentic writing that we know. There's all kinds of questions. There's a book called Second Clement, but the authenticity is in question. But that first book, we're positive, or nearly positive as you can be, that he wrote that, and he was the writer that had authored it and penned it specifically for Corinth. Okay, more with Clement, because he ties in back farther. Origin of Alexander and Ebius maintained that um, Clement of Rome was the same Clement mentioned by the Apostle Paul in Philippians. And we can't positively say that, but because of the dates and when everybody lived, they've got this idea from somewhere, and both those writers at two different times in the early church go, wait a second, this is the same Clement that's cited in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help those women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, this would have been early on in Clement's life. He would have been young there, uh, but they believe he's the same person. Okay, now there's persuasive evidence that Clement had 
personal contact, and they come from inside his writings, with Simon Peter, and that he had actually studied under the apostles. So Irenaeus uh, writes this to inform us, this man, Clement of Rome, as he has seen the blessed apostles and had been conversant with them, might be said to have the preaching of the apostles still echoing in his ears and their traditions before his eyes. So it's hard. We don't have all the extra biblical literature um, that he may have been pulling from, but he was definitely telling us that this Clement was the same one from the book of Philippians. Then we have Origen of Alexandria. Uh, He was a scholar. He did a lot of writing. Um, He was uh, very much committed to purity, purity of, of what we're reading and purity in his life. And he produced all kinds of work. He produced works on theology and textual criticism. Again, we talk about that, what you have you can trust. Well, this was going on, you know, just uh, uh, within 150 years or so um, after the last apostle. And they were concerned that what you and I read today was the word of God. So the, the, the scientific concept of textual criticism, of making sure the text is pure, has been around a very, very long time. And he also did some commentaries, some biblical interpretation. So you can see there, there are three of his most important uh, words. Um, a few of his views, some people offer to be a little unorthodox, um, and there's been debate whether he should be a saint or heretic, but most people think he was pretty good. Um, his father was beheaded for the faith in 202, um, and at that time, he was just a young man He ended up going out then and starting to teach and to work in schools and began to taught basic Christian beliefs. He became a headmaster eventually. And uh, as I said, he produced all kinds of work. They were both scholarly and massive in scope. There's a lot of quantity out there. Okay, his original study were with non-Christian people. He wanted to know what they were doing. So he went down to Alexander of Egypt and he began to understand their arguments. And from there, he wrote a couple of books. Our First Principles, that's believed to be the first systematic theology. So just going through, and, and, and I was thinking that tonight when we were singing a couple of our songs. Oh, there's justification and there's, there's redemption. So when you hear people use propitiation, when you hear those terms, that's the concept of systematic. What do these words mean and how do they fit? So he was one of the first to sort of put something together comprehensive. And again, he did some more work on apologetics and textual criticism. Then Tertullian, um, in, in church history, he was the first one that started to write in Latin. So some of the Latin theology came out there. Um, he wrote a lot in defense of Christianity, and he would take on anybody inside and outside the church. It didn't matter to him. Um, and he had an enormous influence. If there's a few of the names you may have heard before, this would have been one of them. Uh, born in, in a Roman, to a Roman centurion in Carthage. He was born in 145. Uh, he was a lawyer, trained in Greek and Latin, and he converted to Christianity a little bit later, or early in life, uh, about the age of, what's that? Well, midlife, 40. Okay, he, again, himself was profoundly affected by those who found themselves in the arena being martyred for their Christian faith. It impacted him to see them die and to hear their testimonies and to talk to the families. 
that was part of what led him to the Lord. And then later was ordained a Presbyter. And then again, he did some more writing. And he was one of the first people to come up with the concept to describe the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he said this, these three are one in substance, not one in person. So the development of systematic theology. Three in one, not, not in person. Again, um, we talk about some of the talkings of, of what, he had, what he had written about. Um, he was also the first to describe the church building as church. So up to that point, when anybody used the term church, yeah, they thought of the people. They didn't think of the building. So when they go back in history, he was the first one to say, oh, I'm going to a church, which meant he was going to building. Prior to that, when they talked about going to church, they were going to meet with a group of believers, called out ones, is what he was looking for. Uh, he was also the first to make a distinction between laity and clarity, or, or between clergy and laity. Um, and I think that's about it for Tertullian. Um, he firmly taught against baptizing children because they weren't old enough to repent. So he stood out against some of the Catholic teaching. Rome had already kind of began to some of their strange teaching and uh, had some issues already to that point. And, and I like the principle he laid down, uh, that custom without truth is only time-honored air. And uh, he was very trying to be very pure in his doctrine. Okay, and my second to last one. He was a prolific writer, a theologian, a most prolific theologian in the uh, third century, and he really promoted Christian orthodoxy. Again, we go back to the confusion and bad doctrine that was starting to happen in Rome. Well, he stood out amongst the others, and he was, again, back to that concept of the Holy Spirit. From modelism, which, which gives you the idea that um, God presents himself in three different ways, that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches one God, three persons. And we can see that in the representation even at Christ's baptism. Who's present at Christ's baptism? Okay, well, how is the Father represented? Voice from heaven, the Spirit, the dove, and of course, Jesus got baptized. Okay, go with that. Um, anything else I should pull out from him? Uh, just there's all he was very high in moral standards, and he ended up exiled too, uh, same as John did, but to a different location. As far as when he died, it, it's a little difficult to determine exactly. Um, there were some interesting legends to read, and there are quite a few of them. I only read a couple of them. And the other interesting thing about his writings, when we look at what the church was like in the early centuries, from his writings, he preserves for us a lot of information about practices around communion, practices around ordination, and about baptism. So for church history, it's kind of fun. Okay, so all those people spoke that John the Apostle was the one that wrote the book of John, or the gospel, not the gospel of John, Revelation, and that was him. Other things we know from uh, looking at the gospel of John, and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, is that the writing and style and usage of words and some of the theology are all similar when you, when, when you look at them. So we know they're written by one person. And then we look at Revelation, that same style, those same words are found consistently in the 
book of Revelation, which leads us to the fact that common ideas, ideology, and terminology, it's likely the same author because everybody has a different style. But not everybody believed in the fact that there were detractors. Not everybody believed that it was Johannian in its authorship. In Dionysus of Alexander, he questioned that authorship. But his question can be attributed to more the fact he didn't believe in a millennial kingdom. So when he was looking at things, he was trying, oh no, John didn't write that. That, that was written before 70 AD. That's all historical. There's nothing true about it. Because he had a problem with Revelation 20. And that was common at that time. There was a lot of people in the Church of Rome and around there that had issues with it. And he was one of them. So, Revelation. Again, this is a bit of a high overview. Who, what, where, when, and why? So we already answered who was the Apostle John. What? So, Revelation is made up of a few parts. There is a letter. At the beginning, there are letters to the churches. Okay? There are letters. Then there's some prophecy of some things that will happen. Then we get into the visions of what was heard and saw, which is more apocalyptic. So there's sort of three styles with inside the one book. Where? Well, Potamos, while he was in exile. So you can see it's right off the... I got the right one, I think. It's right there. So Ephesus is here. These were the churches that you can recognize some of them that he wrote to, but he was exiled into mining area out there, and that's where we believe he died. So when was it written? And we're going to look at a timeline in a second. Uh, 96 AD is the idea. So I want to go through this timeline with you. The reason I want to go through the timeline is just so you get a feel of what was going on that first century, what was going on with John and when he wrote this. And there are some things that come out why he wrote this. So... When we look at this, um, there were some mess-ups with the calendar um, when they switched over from zero to one, and there could be a three-year difference. So that's why there's a little bit of a bracket, uh, or a little bit of time that Jesus' ministry, 28, 33, somewhere in there. Then we have his death on the cross which in his resurrection, which would have been 30 or 33. Then we move along and we come up to, we come up to Nero. Nero reigned from 54 to 68 AD. And I'm going to talk about Nero because I think Nero sets up some of the other things that we need to understand. Then uh, Diomitius, Diomitians, his brother, is actually responsible for the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, um, just a little after Nero's reign ended. And then here we can see this, this gentleman's reign, Diomitians from here, uh, to 96 approximately. And you can see John wrote three letters from 89 to 91, we believe. He wrote the Gospel of John somewhere between 89 and 95. We're not exactly sure. And then Revelation was either 95, 96. And then somewhere around 98, 100 from the different accounts we have. That's, we believe, when John passed away. So that's sort of a, a, a span. But some of the things going on here need to know some of the political context to which the letter was written in. So even though this was before the letter was written, it sets up some things for us. How many are familiar with Nero? The, the emperor that played the fiddle while Rome burned, right? Okay, 
So he's born 37 AD. He was the fifth uh, emperor of Rome. Um, he was adopted. Uh, he was adopted by, by his uncle, and when his uncle Claudius passed away at, at 50, in 54 AD, Nero took over the throne or the emperorship at the age of 16. And, and as he was emperor, he, he, he increasingly became stranger and, and more brutal in, in his reign. Um, under his reign, Christianity, the first, really started to spread. It spread wildly. Out of the New Testament, 14 books were written during his time, or parts of those books were written in his time. Uh, it was under him that Nero, or under Nero, that Paul served his house arrest uh, between 60 63 AD. And Nero was an, I didn't know this about him, but he was accompl- I knew he was an accomplished musician, but he was also an accomplished singer. And he actually won a chariot race at the Olympic Games in Greece, um, which I didn't know about him. Uh, as we said, his tyranny, his brutality increased over time. He would murder anybody that got in his way, including family members. Uh, during the Great Fire, it was, it was six days long, and this is really towards the end of his reign, um, and, and there were a lot of problems. He had made a lot of enemies by now in the Senate, in the Praetorian Guard. Um, city was a, a large city, only three districts, uh, escaped any damage from this fire, and he then blamed the Christians. Oh, it's the Christians' fault. That's why this has happened. And it's about this time when you read those stories that are well documented when they used to set Christians on fire in his garden. That's about when this happened after the war, or after the fire, is when he did this. Um, as this increased, the Praetorian Guard, those that were his soldiers to guard him, eventually, as they came near to the end of his reign, switched their loyalty to a gentleman called Galba. And then eventually the Senate named him uh, public enemy, uh, sort of public enemy number one. He was going to be on all the post office box. They were, they were just out to get him and they wanted him gone. Well, he fled Rome and later took his life at age 30. And so that was the end of Nero. But it already had set the tone for Christians were bad and that anti, anti-Christian um, uh, flavor to Rome had started and it continued to carry on from there. Domitian, now, now this is a mix because it's him. He was born in AD 51. He dies about the same time um, John writes the, uh, Revelation. He was emperor from 81 to 96, so 15 years. But his father, Vespasian, who was a general, and when Rome was having all its problems in 68 um, AD, and it was after the fire and all that had happened, he had besieged militarily uh, Jerusalem, and he was able eventually to proclaim himself, after Nero's death, the next year in 69, proclaim himself emperor. So he had besieged Jerusalem, he had laid hold to the holy country, and then as Nero had committed suicide, he went back to uh, Rome and had enough power in the military and within the Senate to make himself the new emperor. So he becomes emperor in 69. His son Titus is the one that finishes off Jerusalem, finishes the siege, destroys the temple, um, and Titus becomes emperor when his dad dies in 79, and 
Titus, though, only lives two years and dies in 81 AD, although there seems to be some hastening of his death by his brother to be able to take over the throne. So there seems that there was some suspicious activity that eventually led to Titus's death, and that's how we get Domitian in charge. He was not very well-liked from the very beginning. He was cruel. He wasn't well-received by those in, in the Senate, not like his father or his brother who had a good reputation. His cruelty continued, and he was offensive, and it grew, and he is known to really persecute Christians. We thought Nero was bad. He took it up a notch. Um, and he was also the one that banished John to the island of Patmos. Um, that source comes from Irenaeus, that it was the, the emperor that did it himself. There is some question to that, but most people say that's true. So on this side, there's Nero, Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian. Okay, so now we have the book. Revelation was written by John. The book is, uh, consists of letter, prophecy, and apocalyptic literature. It was written on Patmos, where John was exiled, was written about 96 AD, and it was written to encourage believers about the end times. It was written as a book of encouragement in hope that it would bring repentance, that it would help people to continue on faithfully because they wanted to know what would happen. They were underneath such an oppressed Roman state that they were concerned for their very lives. And, and, and the letter was written to say, hey, God wins in the end. In the end, Christ overcomes all this. So here's a little bit of an outline. It starts off with the things which you have seen. So there's a prologue, there's a, there's a vision of the glory of Christ, and then there's the commission of the apostle. Here's what I want you to write. When he opens up in the book, he begins to write the letters to the different churches. These, and I showed you, these are historical churches and they were written to the churches, and they were letters that, that have given condemnation in places and adoration in other places. And I think that because churches can take on, any church even today can take on a flavor, I think they also have something to say to us as an individual. Let me show you what I mean. I just want to look at Laodicea. I'll look at a couple of verses from there. I'm only going to do two. And the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So a church is made up of what? People. So it's not that the building, depending who I talk to, this auditorium's cold or hot. It's not that the, the auditorium's cold or hot. It's the people. So when you read through the letters at the beginning of Revelation to the different churches, we have to ask ourselves, am I cold or hot? Am I this way or am I not? And there are not too many people that like to drink lukewarm do we have any lukewarm water drinkers? Brian. <laughs> Brian, you're neither cold nor hot. <clears throat> my my in-laws, well, my mother-in-law still does 
hot water. And it's like, she just boiling water, pour it in a cup, and she starts drinking. It's like, how can you do that? Most people don't like lukewarm. Lukewarm orange juice or lukewarm pop. or You just spew it out, and you want it hot or cold, depending what. And, th- and that's basically, when you read through this, we think of our own lives. And, and maybe that's one of, the, one of the things for the church of North America especially. Are we cold or hot, or are we just lukewarm? With, with the affluency that we have with money and the ability to, to buy things and, and sometimes more rely on ourselves than the Lord, that's an accusation that can often be laid against us. And, and sometimes when we meet people from other countries and they're believers, the vibrancy to which they live out the word, the vibrancy to which they witness and share their faith, just astound me. Uh, we have good friends from, from Africa um, Charles, and he was, he comes over every once in a while, and they're affluent, but they're in Africa. He grew up back in a very poor region, and his desire to live the gospel and to share the gospel is just so keen inside him. And, and when they come here, they, they visit their Christian friends, and they think nothing of getting on a bus to to go and have hospitality with somebody three hours away. They're very frugal, so sometimes they don't rent a car. And it's like, well, just drop us off at the bus station. We'll be back in a couple of days. And they'll just take the bus to wherever and then come back. But they want to share the love of Christ. They want that fellowship with one another. Um, I think of Filipino friends the same way, of growing up in poverty. And, and they want that fellowship. They're hot for the Lord. Um, so... Sometimes we're accused as being lukewarm, and we need to be on fire for the Lord. Okay, so from there, and, and we're not going to spend a lot of time here, because this is where we're going to get into some of, the, some of the deeper stuff when we start looking through things. We have the things which will take place after this. So what's going to come? Futuristic. So we talk about worship. We talk about the Great Tribulation. Talk about the returning of the King. And then we get into the Millennium in chapter 20. Which, which comes up with different views. And even within our own congregation here, we have people that are pre-mill, and I know the doctrine here is pre-mill, pre-trip. Within your congregation, you have people that are amill. We have people that attend here that are pre-mill, mid-trib. We have people that are here that are pre-mill, post-trib. So, one of the reasons a lot of people don't like to go into Revelation is because they know they're going to offend somebody. Well, that's not what I believe. How do you get that out of Scripture? So we're going to go down that path anyhow um, and, and, and look at each one of them. But again, the church position, according to the statement of faith, is pre-mill, pre-trib. We'll talk about that one, but we'll look at what some of the other ones are. And just because somebody holds a different end-time view doesn't make them a bad person or... Die. They're wrong, no. Um, but it doesn't make them a non-Christian or horrible person. And that has been the tendency with some churches to really go off on a tangent with that. And it's like, there's a difference of opinion. They're doing it a little differently, but it doesn't make them unsaved. Then we have the great white throne judgment, and then finally, the eternal state as far as what's going to take place. And yes, since John MacArthur said I could use it, I just used his because I agree with him. And there's another one... Um, you can look, and I've been posting them up on the web, 
uh, Swindell does a good job. He's also pre-mill. Does a good job at looking through how the book's put together. And, and you can get those for free. You can either follow them on Facebook or you can go into the Canadian site. And they're underneath resource. And they're great to help us understand what's in the book and what's going to happen next. Now, Book of Revelation. There's a lot of numbers and symbols in it, which can be confusing. Um, it was interesting to, to, to note, though, that some of the symbolism used, so you know that the geography in Revelation, it isn't referencing usually present-day places. Usually many of the references go, go back to the Old Testament, and they're referencing places that you'll find in the Old Testament. So if you're familiar with Ezekiel and Daniel, then you'll be familiar with the geography because that's what they pull from. Well, if you were living, and this is the reason we went through all that, if you're living underneath an emperor that is jealous, that is concerned, and as Christians, we see the struggle between light and dark and the powers of principalities, we see that this is a real spiritual warfare. So if, if you're wanting to put the word out there, but you, you don't want the Romans to get it, you use stuff that they don't understand and won't take time to bother to, to think it through. So that is likely why the geography is referenced to the Old Testament. But the book is also rich with symbolism of the Old Testament as it's a fulfillment of what Christ came here to do. He redeemed us, and then one day he will take us all to be with him, the new heavens and the new earth. And so it's rich with symbolism because it's one book it started in Genesis, and it unfolds God's plan of working with man to bring about the redemption and their salvation. And finally, when it all wraps up, and that's the book of Revelation. So it's rich with many things. Okay. Um, Revelation in the canon. I didn't go deep into this, just to say this. That there are other apocalypses out there in the sense there's one by Paul, there's one by Peter, there's one by Zechariah. In, in the building of the canon, they were all rejected. As they looked at Revelation, and as they looked at who wrote it and how it fit in, it stood head and shoulders above these, and there's others, above all these books that were claiming to show us what the end was going to be like. Um, so we can stand assured that people have looked again and again through the years. Should this be in canon? Should this be in canon? And then finally they said, yes, this is from the Lord for you and I. The other thing is that Revelation is also enveloped with a blessing and a cursing or a warning. So when we start Revelation, um, here we have the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the thing that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel of his servant to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And then verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So there's a threefold blessing. The first one is, blessed is the one, singular, the person who's reading these words out loud. Blessed is that person who takes the time to read Revelation aloud to the congregation. 
And then the second one is, blessed are those who hear. So there's a blessing for you listening to the word of revelation from whomever's reading it, wherever that is. And then finally, the last blessing is on both reader and listener. Blessed are those who keep what is written in it. So the blessing is threefold. For those who speak the word out to you is on them. Blessed are those who hear the word. And blessed are those who keep the word. Both the speaker and the listener. Why? Possibly because it's a very deep, trudging book. And a lot of people will just set it aside. Right? Revelation is not the most popular book to preach from. (laughs) And uh, sometimes it's not even the most popular Sunday school book. Unless you have Brian in your congregation. Brian likes Revelation. So, um, but there is a blessing. And I think the blessing is there so that we won't ignore the whole counsel of God. Then on the other side of the envelope, at the end of the book, in Revelation 22, 18 through 21, I warn everyone who hears the words of prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If you haven't read it yet, take a chance to read all the ugly things if you're thinking of adding to this. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. So, we have warnings. First, who hears the word. So if you're listening to it and then you start to add to it, all those plagues described in the book will come your way. So we shouldn't be adding to this at all. And if anyone takes away from it, this is the second part, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which is described in this book. So a stark warning here, a a harsh warning. Leave the book of Revelation alone. It stands for a reason. It's there for it, it might be hard to work through. We might not get every little point. We might not have it all perfectly put together, but don't change it. But taking time to read through it will be a blessing. I forget, there's a lady that reads through it to music in the background. Has anybody heard that one? She's got a symphony orchestra and she reads through Revelation. It's actually quite fun to listen to um, because it's very dramatic how she reads it. Uh, I've enjoyed that. What is that? Haven of Rest? That's not what they call it today, is it? Haven Today, that's what they call that show. Um, She's often on there and she does a great job. She's a great reader um, and it's with a music score in the background. It's, It's a nice way to listen to it. Okay, so this Revelation 22 at the end, this should not be used as a proof test that anyone could lose their salvation. The overall context of the book lends to itself with the belief that a real child of God isn't going to add and take away. So if you're really saved, you're not interested in adding or taking away from this. 
So some people will run to the end of Revelation and say, oh, this is a proof text. You can lose your salvation. No, it's not. That's not what it's there for. Okay, I want to do an overview of the book of Daniel, but we'll do a shorter book of Daniel overview next time, um, a little bit longer than this one. And then one of the other things we're going to start into is to look at the different end times views. This is one of the slides. It's not exactly what I'm going to send to Frank. Frank, you said you're going to print them out, right, so we can put them on a board? So I've got to send them to Frank this week so we can print them out. Uh, it'll be a couple of weeks before we have to have them, but we can print them out and, and put them up. We'll have them on the screen, but we'll also have where people could go and, and look at them. I think there's that long board used in Sunday school is what you had said. So that's where we're going. So hopefully we'll get through them, but we'll take time to, to look at each one. And uh, as I said, I just got to work on a couple of things for that. So that's it. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the book of Revelation. And Father, even though it can be hard and at times intimidating, Father, it's there for a reason and it's there to encourage us, to encourage us that following Jesus Christ is the right way to go. It's to encourage us that right, wrong will be made right. It's to encourage us to remain faithful to you And Father, it was written in a very difficult time of history where many who believed in you lost their lives. So Father, we thank you for the courage of these men and women who who continually looked at text and and continually wrote and passed down to us your word so that we might have it today. Sometimes we forget the cost that these men and women paid just for having scripture and for copying scripture and for handing scripture out we're so grateful uh, that they stood firm in the faith and father in, in in 2023 may we stand firm in the faith may the words of revelation encourage us that one day we will all be together in a glorious reunion no more pain no more sorrow no more death And Father, that that, that new heaven and new earth will be such a glorious time. So we thank you for your words. We thank you for the encouragement. We pray as we go about this week that we may take time to remember those who have committed in the past to ensure that we have good doctrinal teaching and that we have your word that we can turn to and open up so freely in our own homes to be able to read and to cherish. Pray that this week might be filled with opportunities to give you praise and glory and filled with opportunities to speak your name into the lives of people around us that don't know you. And Father, that as that word goes forward and as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, we may be privileged to see some respond. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.